Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Just a couple of quick things before we begin this morning, if I could. I want to remind you, um, Mission LaGrange is coming up July the 6th through the 11th. I'm going to ask you to do two things. First is to begin to pray about that. We had about 300 people last year involved in that mission here locally. All the things we do overseas, we want to do here in LaGrange, and we want to make an impact on the community. The beautiful thing about that week last week was the beginning of a lot of local ministries that came from that that are continuing now. Uh, Some of you are involved in some of the local missions that started with Mission LaGrange. So I'm going to ask you, first of all, to pray about that. July the 6th through the 11th, pray about being involved in it, what you can do. The second thing is, if you're interested in leading or planning or being kind of on the beginning stages of Mission LaGrange this year, we're going to have a meeting tonight at 4 p.m. in the fellowship hall. So if you've got an idea for a ministry you think we can do in LaGrange, you need to be here tonight. If you want to help lead or coordinate one, maybe you did last year, maybe you want to help this year. If you want to be a part of the process now, we're going to ask you to be in the fellowship hall this afternoon at 4 p.m. so we can think about, talk about, and begin to plan for Mission LaGrange, okay? Let me pray for us when we're going to begin this morning. Father, thank you for an incredible time of worship. Lord, we sing praises to your name. Lord, we think about you. Lord, we worship you. But I pray, Father, that idea of worship and the idea of praise wouldn't stop there. It would continue into our time of study, Lord. As we praise your name by, Lord, by seeing the importance of studying your word, taking time out of our lives to open the truth, to apply it to our lives, Lord, to be different. And I pray as we do that. I pray as we study your word, you would speak very clearly through me, Lord. I don't have anything to say outside of the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that as we study your word, as we understand it, you would speak very clearly to us. And then, Lord, I pray through the power of the Spirit, we would be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his powerful name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to continue our study this morning through the book of Genesis. We've entitled the sermon series, In the Beginning. And I want to kind of map out for you a couple of things. I want to review and remind you of where we've been, if you had not been with us in a few weeks. And I want to kind of give you a picture of where we're going. We've kind of already studied through Genesis 1 and 2, the creation, the beauty of the creation of the Lord. Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world, death enters the world, everything changes. And, and by the way, just kind of so you'll understand what I hope for this series. I really hope when we finish this series, you'll be able to kind of remember the big picture of Genesis. This outline we've kind of worked through and the the, the big pieces of the puzzle, but Genesis chapter 3, sin, death, entered the world, everything from that point forward in history, everything from that point forward in scripture is a picture of God redeeming fallen humanity back to himself. Now, Genesis chapter 4, last week we took a look up the beginning of that in the first few verses, and we studied Cain. And in Cain, we saw a man whose heart was far from the Lord, a man who was separated from the things of the Lord, a man who had decided he was going to be unrepentant of his sin. And because that, the Lord banished him, cast him out. And the Bible tells us, sadly enough, that he lived forever separated from the Lord. Now, we're going to study this morning kind of the second half of Genesis chapter 4. 
And we're going to see within the line of Cain, within his, his sons and his daughters and the generations to come, we're going to see this line, this, this picture, and this growth of a godless society. We're going to start with a man who has separated himself from the Lord. We're going to see that generation after generation come, and through those generations we see that the separation away from the Lord becomes farther and farther, and that gap grows wider and wider. Now, this is important. This section is important for a couple of reasons. First reason, we're going to see the growth of society. That's important for us to understand. We're going to kind of think through that. We go from Adam and Eve, the first people on the planet, to the growth of a society. We're going to think through that a little bit and what that means to us. And then the second thing I want you to understand this morning is that I believe Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 17 and following, is a warning to those of us that profess Jesus Christ. It's a warning that we need to be careful the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we live, that we don't live our lives separated from the things of the Lord. Now, I just want to challenge some of you this morning. Some of you are here this morning because it's just something you do on Sunday morning. Maybe it's habit, maybe a friend invited you, maybe you've come just because you feel like you ought to come on Sunday morning. But I just want to warn you, I just want you to think through your life and be honest with yourself. Some of you are living separated from the Lord. Some of you aren't worshiping Him the way you ought to in your day-to-day life. Some of you have no desire to serve Him. Some of you have no desire to worship Him. And so for, for those of you and for all of us that follow Christ, this ought to be a warning for us to be careful how we live. One writer explained Genesis 4 like this. This chapter describes patterns of behavior into which every man is likely to lapse and they stand as warnings to all who are tempted to disregard God's laws. Now let me just fast forward a few chapters and remind you that this godless society from Cain, a man who was unrepentant, unwilling to follow the Lord, a man who was separated from him for all time, through his line comes the flood and the destruction of mankind because of his sinfulness. That's where we're going, that's where we're going to end up, and we'll get there in a few weeks. Now let's take a look this morning, if we would, Genesis chapter 4. We're going to study the remainder of the chapter, and we're going to look at the first few verses And understand what the Lord's saying to us this morning. Beginning in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. Now just a a side note here. We see so many times in Scripture that when somebody accomplished something, they named it after the Lord, or they referenced the Lord in the naming, not Cain. Cain decides to make a name for himself and for his family. Now verse 18. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod was the father of Mehujal, and Mehujal was the father of Methushael. Now this is not Methuselah, they're different. We'll see that in chapter 5. And Methushael was the father of Lamech. Now Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zilah. Ada gave birth to Jabel. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. And Zilah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. And Tubal-Cain's sister was Naaman. Now we're going to stop there just for a few minutes. And we're going to kind of understand this first point. Kind of the foundation of where we're going to go this morning. Point number one. We see in this text the growth of a godless society. We see the growth 
of a godless society. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you. I kind of laughed with the first service just a little while ago about this particular portion of Scripture. Really, the the latter portion, the second half of chapter 4, and all of chapter 5 are really just kind of genealogies. And if you're like me, just being very honest, there have been times when I've been reading through the book of Genesis, and I come to the genealogies, and what do you do? You You just kind of skip over them, right? We just kind of move past them. Why? Because they're boring, we don't understand them. Oftentimes we can't even pronounce the names of the people anyway. So we're kind of mumbling names. We don't know who we're talking about. It's, you know, Lord, I'm just going to... Okay, now I need the good stuff. Now let's get to know. But I just want to encourage you this morning on, on a couple of different fronts. Number one, the Lord thought it was important enough to put it here, so we need to study it, okay? Can we at least agree to that? But here's why genealogies are important. I want you to understand this before we delve into this. Firstborn sons throughout history have held a very special place. If you are a firstborn son, you oftentimes receive the inheritance and the land and certain political positions if your father was a politician and did important things. And so the genealogies help these people throughout history kind of focus on and keep straight this line of who the son was and who's going to receive the inheritance. Now here's what we need to understand about genealogies. These people would have had many more sons and many more daughters. But the genealogy paints this picture for us. It gives us a record of the firstborn. One writer explained it like this. Never was a nation more careful to preserve their genealogy than the Hebrews. For on them rested the distinction of tribes, the ownership of lands, the right to the highest offices and privileges. Hence, their public tables of genealogies were kept secure against all changes. It's interesting, right? God has given us this genealogy to help us understand not only these people, but the picture of how these people develop and generation after generation to come. And in this particular context, in the last part of Genesis chapter 4, we see this picture of a godless society. Now let's back up to the beginning in verse 17 because this godless society is, been, is going to begin with Cain and his children. Now I told you from the beginning of this sermon series that one of the things I wanted to do as we walk through these passages of Scripture together is to answer the questions that people are actually asking. It'd be easy for me to fabricate questions that nobody's asking and answer those and feel good about myself, but I want to answer the questions that people are really asking. And in my study, and even this week, I had a phone call about this exact idea. The question that more people ask, the question that more people are confused about is this. Where did Cain's wife come from? I've had people ask me that. I've read about it. In fact, I read an article this week that said this pastor was talking about teaching in seminary. And he said when he gets to this passage of Scripture, that's the main question seminary students want to know. Where did Cain's wife come from? Let's just think through this together for a few minutes if we could. The Bible tells us very clearly that Adam and Eve were the first people on the planet. Now, some people have have made, I believe, this false argument that Adam and Eve were just a group of people. There were other races, there were other tribes, there were other kingdoms. The problem with that idea is it's not what the Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that Adam and Eve were first. Cain and Abel were born. So at this moment, there are no other tribes, there are no other races. So the question is, where did Cain's wife come from? Now, I'm going to give you the answer. And then we're going to think through it just a little bit together, okay? It's going to startle you, so prepare yourself. But I think I can make the case biblically. I believe that Cain's wife, very simply, was one of his sisters. 
Now, when you hear that, some of you are already thinking, <laughs> right? We don't want to think about this. We don't want to think about marrying our sister or sisters. We don't want to think about marrying our brothers. Right? We have a real problem with this in modern society. And that's true, and we should for some simple reasons. But there's two real simple reasons, very clear reasons, that in the beginning of time, and really in parts of the Old Testament, they didn't have a problem with this. Two reasons. Reason number one. The reason we don't intermarry within families today is because of genetic issues. And without going into the detailed genetic issues, if a brother or sister had a child, there could be some problems, there could be some deformities. We understand that, right? But with Adam and Eve, because they were created perfect, their genes were perfect. You understand that? There were no problems with their siblings. There were no problems with their genetics. So they didn't have to worry about some of the same abnormalities or genetic problems that we'd have to worry about today. They were created perfect. You may remember that story we talked about. But here's the second truth we need to understand. We need to be very careful. And this is the case in all scriptural interpretation. We need to be very careful because we sometimes have this tendency of applying our ideas and our customs and our culture on people of other times and other places. And when they don't live the same way we lived or do the same sorts of things that we do, we find fault with them. Well, let me just remind you, if you were to read through the Old Testament, you would see that this idea of marrying a brother or sister, although it's strange for us, historically, it's not as uncommon as you might think. Abraham, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 20, verse 12, Abraham speaking of his wife, Sarah, listen to the text here. Besides, this is Abraham, she really is my sister, speaking about his wife. The daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. Abraham married his half-sister. Now, we see this in Scripture. You say, this, you know, this is weird. It makes me uncomfortable. It does in our society today. But for people living then, it wasn't that big of a deal. Now, let me just give you a modern-day example. There are things that we do that are different than other cultures. There are things that they do that are different from us. If you were to go to South Asia right now, and you were to speak to people over there about marriage, do you know they would tell you that the vast majority, like 99% of the marriages there are all arranged? Did you know that still today? If you lived in South Asia, your marriage would have been arranged. Now, we had this lengthy conversation with these guys. It was fascinating to me because they sat there and they argued with us that their way is better. That's what they said. And they made an interesting point. They said, listen, you Americans, you're 18, 19. You're going to make a decision about who to marry for the rest of your life. That person's 18 or 19, you make a bad decision, a few years later, you're divorced. He said the divorce rate over there is rampant. Why? Because young kids shouldn't be making life decisions without their parents. Now, when I was 18, that would have been no way. That would have flown all in the face of what I believe. But now that I have daughters that are getting a little bit older, it makes a little more sense to me, right? Amen? I'm like, maybe we, can, maybe we need to incorporate a little bit of this, right? Now, we laugh about that, and that's something that's very strange to us. But to other people in the world... Cultural things are different. And so although we don't necessarily understand it, we see as we study Scripture, it's true. This is what happened. So Cain marries his sister, again, as strange as it may be. And we see through this the genealogy of Adam and Eve continue. We kind of see this picture. So I want to think just for a few minutes, because the Lord gave us this family line, because he gave us this picture of where this is going to go, I want to think through this family line just for a second. I've got a slide I want to pull up just for a second to help you see it. 
It's kind of a boring slide. It's pictures of names of people. But this is the process. Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel. Of course, Abel is killed, so he doesn't have any offspring. Seth, we'll get to in a few minutes. Enoch, a rod, all the way down. And you see kind of at the end of the genealogy, at least in the story here we read in chapter 4, Lamech is kind of the last one we talk about. You can take that down if you want to now. But the Bible tells us about Lamech, and he tells us about how he had children and how his children did certain things. And there's some interesting things I want you to look with me, if you would, please. Pull the scripture back up, if you would. Genesis chapter 4. Let's pull up verse 20. The Bible's talking about Lamech and his wives, and one of his wives is Ada. She gave birth to Jabel. He was the father. Now, this is important. We're going to see kind of this growth of society here, right? He was the father of those who live in tents and raves livestock, right? These are the Bedouin people. Maybe you've heard their name. They're kind of nomadic. They travel around. They have tents. If you've ever been to the Antiquity Center, they have a Bedouin tent there. You should look at the Bedouin tent. It's very interesting. The, the material that they make the tent out of is a very porous material. And they say that at night, you can lay under that in the desert and you can see the stars literally through the tent. But when it rains... That material swells up and those holes close and it becomes waterproof. It's this brilliant design for these tents. But we see that Jabel, through Cain's line, is the father of these people that produce tents and raves livestock and, and they're farmers and they, they move around. Through Jubal, we see in the next verse that we have a, the father of those who have stringed instruments and play pipe music. So we see the birth of music here. Through Tubal Cain in the next verse, we see that he produces tools of bronze and iron. This idea of metallurgy. This idea of creating weaponry and cre- creating tools and things that could help society through these metals, through the bronze and through the iron and through the formation of these things. Here's what we're seeing. We're seeing this growth of society, right? We're seeing culture develop. We're seeing skills being learned. We're seeing art. We're seeing music. One writer said it like this. Through the disobedient line of Cain, many of the world's significant cultural discoveries emerged. Now let's just pause for a second. Let's back up and begin to think through application for our lives here, okay? What we see is that a godless group of people A godless line from Cain, people that are separated from the Lord, not interested in the Lord, not interested in doing what he wants them to do. Even through this line, we see worldly success, right? Now, here's the application and the danger. Just because you're having success in the world, that doesn't necessarily mean you're walking with the Lord. We confuse those things sometimes. So here's the question I want to consider just for a couple of minutes. Are we striving for success separated from the Lord? Do you desire to make your name great? Or do you desire to make the name of the Lord great? Because that's a challenge for every person, isn't it? That's a challenge for every man and woman on this planet. Are we going to make our name great? Or are we going to make the name of the Lord great? Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, the words of Christ. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? You remember that verse, right? That's always been an interesting verse to me because I think, why would the Lord say something like that? Why would anybody want to gain the world and forfeit their soul? Right? Nobody would ever want to do that. Well, Christ obviously said this and explained this and taught this for one simple reason. Why? Because people do this all the time, don't they? It's a struggle we face. Lord, I'm going to set aside the things of Christ in favor of the things of the world. I want to find success here and make a name for myself here, and I'm not going to worry about the things of the Lord. You may remember that when Jesus himself was tempted, 
The Bible says he was baptized. He came up out of the water. The Bible says the Spirit led him into the wilderness. He was tempted three different times. The enemy tempted him. The third time, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kings of the world and their splendor. And here's what the devil says to Christ. All this I will give you, he says, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Hadn't this been a temptation for humans from the beginning of time? And our sinful nature, my sinful nature, we desire the praises of men, don't we? We get caught up in this desire for worldly things. And we see when we do that, we separate ourselves from the Lord. And we begin to make a name for ourselves instead of making the name of the Lord great. We first started doing mission work. And some of you will appreciate this that have been. And we go into these very impoverished areas. The first several times I went, I was just almost, you can't process the poverty. You just can't understand it. It's, it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around. And the first few times I went, I always came back thinking how, you know, how, how poor they are and how pitiful they are and how much better we have it here in America. And I still think that on some levels because we do have it a lot easier. There, there are things that we take for granted that we have that they, that they don't have. But the more I go and the more I understand them and the more I reflect on our society here in the world, especially in America, I'm not so sure that we have it a lot better than they do. I think we have it better materially, but I think the danger in America is that we let the material things separate us from the things of the Lord, don't we? We bind at this line, and I'm at the front of the line. I mean, I'm not going to preach at you. I'm going to stand along beside you. We bind at this line that the more things we can have and the more praise of men that we can accept, the happier and the more fulfilled we're going to be. The problem with that, twofold, number one, it's not biblical. Number two, it doesn't really bear out in real life. I was reading an article this week from Forbes magazine, and it was all about happiness and where does it come from. And here's just a startling couple of sentences from that article. Surveys have found virtually the same level of happiness between the very rich individuals on the Forbes 400 and the herdsmen herdsmen of East Africa. Lottery winners return to their previous level of happiness after five years. Increases in income just don't seem to make people happier. Isn't that interesting? See, Cain and his descendants were interested in making a name for themselves. They were interested in doing all they could do and accomplishing all they could accomplish outside of the presence of the Lord. And I think that ought to just be a warning for us. I think we ought to be challenged. Don't ever try to make a name for yourself outside of what the Lord's calling you to do. Because he's got a plan for you. And it may or may not involve success in the eyes of the world. We need to remember that. So we get this picture of of a godless society of people that are moving away from the Lord. And so let's kind of logically think through this. Here's Cain and his descendants who are separated from the Lord. They're unrepentant. They're not following Christ. What sort of a person would that society produce? Well, look at verse 23. We're going to get a picture. Lamech. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Here's the second truth I want you to see. Not only do we see this growth of a godless society, but truth number two, Lamech is going to move farther and farther away from the Lord. 
Instead of kind of turning the tide for his family and making things right and repenting and living his life for Christ or for the, for the, the sake of the Lord in the Old Testament, what we're going to see instead is Lamech is going to take his family line farther and farther from the things of the Lord. And there's some things that I want to point out here, some things that Lamech does. Some things that ought to serve as a warning to us, but also as a picture of how this gap, once we separate ourselves from the Lord, can very easily increase. Here's some things that Lamech did that continue to separate himself from the Lord. Here's the first one, polygamy. He married more than one woman. Look at verse 19. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zila. Now there's some questions that come from this. I'm going to set those aside, but I'm going to get to them in just a minute, I promise. I just want to remind you before we answer some of these questions exactly what the Bible teaches Now, we studied several weeks ago, when we were in Genesis 1 and 2 especially, that the model that God has given us for marriage very simply is between one man and one woman. We saw that in Genesis. That was a very clear model. Now, interestingly enough, and I'm not going to kind of go into this line of thinking this morning, but y'all know full well what's going on in our society with this argument right now. We understand this. But I just think it's very interesting that polygamy was a big deal in the Old Testament. We're going to think through that here in just a few minutes. But when you take away the definition... The biblical definition that marriage is between one man and one woman, you open up a lot of other things, don't you? Polygamy is just going to be one of them, I'm telling you. It's a very slippery slope. When we separate ourselves from the things of the Lord and from his clear teaching, it becomes a slippery slope. So we see Genesis 1 and 2. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament. I believe is the clearest picture of marriage in all the Bible. It speaks of the husband and his wife, not his wives. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and into Titus. If you were going to be a church leader, whether a, a pastor, elder, deacon, it speaks that this person is to be the husband of, do you remember? One wife. We, we see it over and over. The scripture is very clear as to exactly what marriage ought to look like, how it ought to be played out. It's between one man and one woman. Now the questions. People say something like this. Okay, I hear what you're saying, Adam. But the Old Testament is filled with examples, filled with people that had more than one wife. You can read about Solomon, you can read about David, you can read about all these people, all on the list goes, that had more than one wife. And if there are all these instances of people that had more than one wife, doesn't that make it okay? Well, I want to give you just for a couple of minutes, and I'm not going to delve too far into this because I don't want to bore you to death, but I want to give you a principle of biblical interpretation that you need to remember. Anytime you're interpreting scripture, there's certain rules that we follow. One of the rules is this, is what we're reading prescribed or is it described? Okay. Now let me explain the difference. If I describe something for you, I'm simply giving you information. I'm telling you a story. There are all sorts of instances in the Old Testament and the New Testament where we read about a description. Something is simply being described to us. For example, Eve listened to the devil. That's a description of what happened. Right? Cain killed his brother Abel. That's a description of what happened. Lamech had two wives. That's a description of what happened. Right? So there are all kinds of instances where things are described for us. Now here's the distinction. Let's be careful. Stay with me. Just because something is described in Scripture doesn't mean we ourselves need to do it. So Eve sinned against the Lord. That's a description. That doesn't mean we're called to sin against the Lord. Cain killed his brother Abel. That's described. That doesn't mean we need to kill our brother. Lamech had multiple wives. That's described. That doesn't mean we need to have multiple wives. 
So that's the description. The other side of that interpretation is there's prescription. There are certain things that are prescribed to us. There are certain things that we are commanded to do. For example, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Surely I'm with you to the very end of the age, right? We're prescribed there to do something. We're given a command. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a prescription. We're commanded, we're given a command to obey. Now here's the problem we run into. When we take a description and we make it a prescription, we have to be careful. Because when you begin to do that, you twist scripture and you misunderstand the context And you take things out of context to be used in ways they're not supposed to be used. And so if we understand the Bible very clearly, we know that Lamech is doing something that's a sin against the Lord. But it gets worse as we follow this progression in this chapter. Not only did he have more than one wife, but he committed murder. The Bible tells us in verse 23, he's speaking to his wives. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for injuring me. So not only is he going to commit polygamy, not only is he going to murder somebody, but then he's going to boast about it. He's going to tell his wives, listen to what I did, and not only am I going to tell you about it, but I'm not fearful that anything is going to take place in my life. Now, I just want to warn you here. Again, this is just another warning sign for us. If you ever do anything that's contrary to the Word of God, and then you boast about it to somebody, you're in great danger. You say, oh, I'd never do anything like that. Well, maybe you do it now. Maybe you were at work and your boss said something to you and you told your boss off. Or you told an employee off. And you can't wait to get home or to get with one of your buddies to tell them how you told this person off. I told them them what I thought. (laughs) Gave them a piece of my mind. That's what we say now, right? Are we living for Christ there or are we living for ourselves? Right? Maybe you're driving down the road and somebody does something to you you don't like and you decide to do something back to them. Maybe they're not going to like and then you get excited to tell somebody that you drive like that. You ever done that? Oh, I'm not going to take that off anybody, man. You know, he cuts me off. I'm going to cut him off. Are we boasting in our sinfulness? Now, I have to be careful because I'm, I'm, man, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm preaching to the choir here because I do, though, we have to be careful. I just think this is a warning for us. Lamech is going to separate himself from the Lord. He's going to sin against the Lord. And then he's going to boast about it. So here we are. We've come to this place in Genesis chapter 4. We've seen sin enter the world. We've seen Cain separate himself from the Lord. We've seen that Cain's gap away from the Lord and the way he's leading his family is going to lead to Lamech, who's going to separate himself even more from the Lord. And by the way, now, we're kind of leading up to this idea of the flood here in a few chapters. Because of the sinfulness of Cain, because of the godless society that he's created, because of Lamech and people like Lamech, the Lord's going to look down here in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, and he's going to flood the earth and destroy all this. But here's the beautiful part as we kind of wind this thing down this morning. Here's the beautiful part, and we've seen this not only in chapter 3, but now we're going to see it in chapter 4. We're going to see it in many other portions of Scripture. Even in the midst of this great sinfulness, even in the midst of a, a godless society, Even in the midst of people that have separated themselves fully from the things of the Lord, we get this beautiful glimmer of hope. 
we see this beautiful picture of grace. Look again in verse 25. So Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Now here's the, the beautiful picture. Here's the glimmer of hope, verse 26. Seth had a son and named him Enosh, and at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. And if you're taking notes, you ought to underline that or highlight that or circle that or, or put a little sign beside that. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of sinfulness, in the, in the midst of the separation from the Lord, people begin to call on the name of the Lord. And that's the third truth we see at this time. People begin to call on the name of the Lord. Now that's an interesting phrase and I want to think about it just for a minute. Because if you were to read through the Old Testament, you would see that this phrase is used time and time again. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, the Bible says he built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. We see in other parts of Scripture, as he walked and as he did things for Christ, or for the Lord, he would build these altars and he would call on the name of the Lord. Genesis chapter 26, Isaac, the Bible says, built an altar there and he called on the name of the Lord. We see this phrase used over and over. Anytime this phrase is used, we see kind of two different ideas here. Number one is they built an altar. They made some sort of a sacrifice. They did something for the Lord. And the second thing we see is that there's some sort of a prayer, right? They, they in some way talked to the Lord. They made a sacrifice and they talked to the Lord and they asked him to lead them. They asked the God. They asked him to bless whatever they were doing. It's this beautiful picture of really the beginning of worship is the world is kind of spinning out of control. As people are sinful and separated from the Lord, we see this beautiful remnant, this picture that even in the midst of this world, they begin to call on the name of the Lord. Now, there are two paths here. If we were to kind of summarize this whole text and understand what the Lord is saying to us, there are two paths. They're very simple. You can choose either in your life to stray from the Lord, to be separated from the Lord, to make a name for yourself. We see that with Cain and with his line. Or we can contrast that with Seth and with his line, people that begin to call on the name of the Lord, people that were interested in following him, people that loved him and wanted to serve him in all things. And, and I think this chapter is really just kind of a summary of the gospel, isn't it? You can either choose the Lord or you can choose yourself. So I want to finish with a question. I want you to think through this and pray through this, and I pray it would rattle around in your brain a little bit this week, very simply. Are you making a name for yourself or are you calling on the name of the Lord? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the truth of this word, Father. It's very clear and very understandable and very challenging, Lord. We see two paths, two very different paths, Father. One that leads to destruction away from you and one that leads to hope. Father, I pray that no matter where we are this morning, Father, whatever path we're walking down, Lord, we would see the importance of following you. For those of us that have strayed from you, Father, I pray we would repent. I pray we'd, we, we would set aside all the sinfulness of our lives and the mistakes that we've made, Father, and we would follow you. We would look to you for guidance. For those that are following the path, Lord, those that are following you and trusting you, Lord, I pray that we would continue to walk down that line, continuing to call on your name, Lord, that you would bless us, you would give us faith, you would give us strength, and you would use us. And Father, I pray you would just speak very clearly to us to take this passage of Scripture, to apply it to our lives, to live for your honor and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. 
Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you some time here at the end of the service. If you want to come and pray, the altar is always open. If you want to repent of your sins and accept Christ, or if you want to join the church, this is your time to respond. You come as we sing this morning. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.